Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. (gasps) No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Shaving your balls is all the rage these days, but here's a question for you. What does it matter what they look like if they taste terrible? Hi, we talk about some pretty heavy and uncomfortable topics on this show. Well, did you know fried, processed foods, alcohol, caffeine, even nicotine affect the way that you taste down there? We spend way less time thinking about it than our partners do, and believe me, they do. Pecker Nectar was developed so you don't have to think about it at all. Pecker Nectar was created to offset the effects of our modern diets, providing a milder, more pleasant personal taste. Thousands across North America have already made Pecker Nectar as much a part of their daily routine as toothpaste or deodorant. Visit peckernectar.com today and use the promo code DOOMSDAY at checkout to get 20% off your first order. Pecker Nectar, helping make sure your Southern gentleman is a gentleman of good taste. If you think going to the bank can be a hassle, and you've always wondered, what's the difference between flammable and inflammable? Well, have we got a story for you. Hello, and welcome to Doomsday, history's most dangerous podcast. Together, we're going to rediscover some of the most traumatic, bizarre, and awe-inspiring but largely unheard of or forgotten disasters from throughout human history and around the world. On today's episode, you'll hear about the worst bank deposit in aviation history, you'll learn why you should never parachute without practice, and you'll learn the medical effects of reverse telescoping your legs into your abdomen. This is not the show that you play around kids or while eating or even in mixed company, but As long as you find yourself a little more historically engaged and learn something that could potentially save your life, our work is done. So, with all that said, shoot the kids out of the room, put on your headphones and safety glasses, and let's begin. You know, it's been a minute since we found ourselves in Chicago. It's a city unlike any other. It's the fifth biggest in North America, and Condé Nast repeatedly calls it the best big city in America. It's got culture coming out of its butt, and it's known for its different neighborhoods, its architectural abundance, live events and things to see and do, and there's culinary and art scenes. They say that the Art Institute of Chicago is the highest rated in the world. It's also the birthplace of modern architecture and brownies. And honestly, it's not a bad thing that we haven't been here in a while. I mean, disasters don't happen here every day. I mean, yes, it did burn to the ground in 1871, but the world's first skyscraper rose from the ashes. We haven't popped by since our very first episode. Remember, 
We visited a squash court at the University of Chicago stag field just before mankind split the very first atom. Well, we're back, but not for any kind of radiation-induced trauma. Not today. We are visiting on July the 21st, 1919. So, what? Capone is a thing, but underground bathtub gin wasn't yet. Hot dogs are things, but deep dish pizza, also not yet. We're here, and World War I just ended, and all the boys were coming back from overseas, and the overall crime rates were down, and industries were bursting. Some more than others. Wink. We're gonna head over to the south side and grab some seats at Comiskey Park to watch the White Sox game. And you might be asking, don't you mean guaranteed rate field? And I absolutely do not. Comiskey Park, it was named after the White Sox founder and their owner, Charles Comiskey. And today, the thing's named after a snippet of legal copy. It's probably the most heartless abomination of a name for a sports field I can think of. And I'll try my best not to throw up all over my roasted peanuts and Cracker Jacks. We're getting here in the late innings of a doubleheader against the New York Yankees. The park was built over a former city dump, and it became the baseball palace of the world. It was only the third steel and concrete stadium in the major leagues. Anyway, Buck Weaver threw a walk-off single in the ninth and rounded out the first game, and now we're into the second. Like all ballparks of the day, Comiskey Park was open to the elements, and today was glorious and sunny. But we're not just here to see a ball game. From the right parts of the stands, you could get a pretty good look at a bonafide marvel of the modern age. See, in the early 1900s, lighter-than-air vehicles were all the rage. Ever hear of the Goodyear blimp? Well, we're here in time for its maiden voyage. And uh, yeah, obviously dust is just a big old bag of gas with some fins and a propeller. But to the people of the age, I'm trying to think of things that we could see that would create that same kind of slack-jawed, what'll-they-think-the-next-fainting spell that people had when they saw this thing in action. In 1783, Jacques Etienne and Joseph Moncolfi invented the first hot air balloon. It looked like an ornate easter egg, but without any of the kind of rudder or engine. Basically a plaything for the wind. And it didn't come with a giant return-if-found tag either. About 70 years later, Henry Giffard built more of a cigar-shaped balloon with a propeller, which made it behave like less of a one-way moving service than Jack and Joe's balloon did. Fast forward to 1900, and Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin of Germany, maybe you heard the name before and can guess what I'm going to say, but he really started to pimp the blimp. No one really remembers where the name blimp came from, but the most common story is that it's short for British Class B airship. You just shorten all that to uh, and add limp to the end. Of course, by that logic, they could have been easily called burps or boobs or Beethoven's. We sometimes call blimps Zeppelins, kind of the same way that we call all face tissues Kleenex. <laughs> Fernie Zepp invented the first ever rigid-bodied airship with more of the shape and abilities of modern airships. It had a metal framework, it was 420 feet in length and about 30 feet in diameter. It was filled with hydrogen gas-filled rubber bags and used a combination of tail fins and rudders and engines to move around more predictably. And yeah, at first, people viewed the whole thing the way you thought of the house in the movie Up. But on board, mm, passengers sat comfortably and they reported feeling safer than on a train. What the people of Chicago were watching that day was Goodyear's blimp, the Wingfoot Express. The what? The what? Well, back in the day, the Goodyear company, their logo was kind of a line drawing of a foot with a wing attached to it. 
was supposed to represent Mercury, the god of speed in the Greek pantheon. Basically, more of like a hand-drawn version of the much more streamlined Nike swoosh that we all look at now. So they took the name Wingfoot from the logo. And yes, we're talking about that Goodyear, the tire and rubber company. During the summer of 1919, their blimp was the talk of the town. What the hell is that? For most of the day, it had been cruising around the downtown area as its crews put it through its paces on training runs. If you can't picture it, imagine a massive balloon, but with more of a cylindrical football shape to it. Like we said, it was huge, and it cast quite a shadow. Passengers sat below the balloon in an open-air wicker gondola suspended beneath the bag. It by itself was 34 feet long, and it could squeeze in about six people. Behind that were two giant Gnome La Rhone 110 horsepower rotary air-cooled engines. And like we said, the balloon portion wasn't really a balloon, more like a housing for smaller balloons carrying 95,000 cubic feet of hydrogen. As the ground crews loosened the ropes tethering it to the earth, the pilot throttled the mighty engines, the propeller caught the air, and the vehicle lifted from the ground with the softest touch and soared into the sky. It floated around 1,200 feet above the city. The only way you'd really know it was there was from the hum of the engines and the pristine shadow that raced along the streets beneath. This thing drew all kinds of attention and everyone gazed upwards. People were literally hanging out of office windows for a better look. And you gotta remember, back in 1919, very, very few people had ever flown. Wilbur and Orville only set that vibe about 16 years earlier. And also, like we said, today was the maiden flight. The Goodyear airship arrived from Akron, Ohio at an unused airplane hangar on the grounds of the White City Amusement Park. The Akron hangar had been taken over by the Army. The airship arrived in pieces and was assembled through early July. It could cruise at about 40 miles or 60 kilometers an hour. And we said it floated about 1,200 feet up. That's how high you might see a traffic helicopter. Since 1917, Goodyear had been using the hangar to assemble blimps for the Navy and other commercial purposes, and thousands would mass around the place to stare. Planes had always been said to be best suited for short flights, you know, 500-700 miles, just hops. Airships, on the other hand, promised to travel long distances without stopping or refueling, which made them perfect for non-stop continental or transoceanic flights. A mixed crowd of aerial enthusiasts, gawkers, businessmen, and military officials all had visions of a future where the skies were filled with blimps. The Daily News predicted that Chicago would soon become the blimpopolis of the Western world. That's their awesome word, not mine. Goodyear's blimp was finishing up its second loop around downtown, floating past Comiskey Park about middle of the third inning. Piloting today was Captain Jack Botner floating to and from Grant Park at the edge of Lake Michigan, and he was joined by small handfuls of mechanics or local officials or reporters on exhibition flights between Grant Park and White City. Flying over downtown Chicago made him a very early rock star before that was even a thing. Before departures, mechanics would get to work double-checking and tuning everything in the engines, just making sure that nothing would go wrong. And check this. A blimp uses less gas in two weeks than it takes a 747 airplane just to taxi to the runway. Blimps use high-pressure gas to make them lighter than air. An empty blimp might weigh 10,000 pounds, but with enough high-pressure gas, it drops to only a few hundred. But yep, this was pretty new technology still, and so much was riding on this that they just couldn't afford any surprises. 
like the time mere minutes ago when thick streams of oil started spraying from one of the engines. The head of Goodyear's aeronautic division saw this and threw a flag on the plane. But the pressure to fix this thing and get it back into the sky was itself sky high. See what I did? Four people had been allowed to board. Earl Davenport was a public relations agent for White City. Carl Weaver and Harry Wacker were flight mechanics. And Milton Norton was a photographer. The Chicago skyline had never risen above 600 feet before, but zoning laws and height restrictions were changing. So the Goodyear company invited him for the flight, hoping his photographs would create some real jelly about the experience. Back at Comiskey Park, fans of baseball became fans of future tech, as Goodyear's blimp made its way from the downtown loop back towards White City, right over their heads. Most of the reason the massive dirigible was crisscrossing the skies above was kind of like a marketing stunt. They needed to create public interest in what Goodyear saw as the future of passenger air travel. People across Europe and America were already all shut up and take my money to get onto one of these things. And now they were seeing it flying over the loop for free. The loop is the core, the heart of downtown Chicago. The name comes from different cable cars and railway systems that have always looped around the areas ever since the late 1800s. Each of the men that I mentioned had been instructed on what to do in the event of an accident, which was actually called an event of the impossible, which is a little too unsinkable ship for my taste, but let's just hold that thought. The ballast was carefully adjusted, the rigging was inspected, the engines were turned on, and up they went. The blimp left the ground as soon as it was released and sailed away without even a quiver. And from that height, the crowd on the field sank farther and farther away. The blimp left White City for Grant Park, where thousands more gathered round to watch the ground crew grab the ropes and gently bring her down. Captain Botner steered over the downtown loop around three, and after four, she was up again. Norton had been set to take photo after photo of the city's skyscrapers from above, when he felt a tremor. The steel cables that secured the gondola beneath the blimp shuddered. Botner looked around, scanning hmm. the balloon, when uh -oh. he saw the flicker of a flame. Before they left, he had casually remarked that this whole thing was safer than walking. And now, his face went ashen, and he told everyone they were going to burn to death and then jumped from the gondola. Before they boarded, each man had been strapped around the waist with an old-timey parachute folded into a bag inside the fuselage, and the captain, apparently he just went to go test his. There were so many witnesses, and they all had different versions of the story. No one could agree where the flame was first seen, but wherever it came from, it spread incredibly fast. They gasped as the blimp burst into flames, enveloping the gas bag, which began to contort and close in on itself, all the while losing lift and quickly falling. Mechanic Carl Weaver understood the assignment, and over the side he went, but a spray of flame licked his parachute, uh -oh. which caught fire, which ruined the effect, and he fell 1,200 feet. Carl Weaver and Harry Wacker jumped out too, but as Earl Davenport leapt, his lines became ensnared in all the rigging. He was trapped and forced along for the ride. He found himself hanging 50 feet below the gondola as the blimp, fully engulfed in flames I might add, buckled in the middle, jackknifed, and dropped. The game at Comiskey was stopped as fans and players watched the disaster unfold in horror. There was plenty of screaming as it dropped. Meanwhile, at street level, 1,200 feet below, the Illinois Trust and Savings Bank had already closed to the public for the day. It was about 5 to 5 and about 150 bookkeepers and clerks 
Nearly all girls were finishing up the day's transaction records and whatnot. Monday was always their busiest day of the week, and there was so much to do, but they'd be able to go home soon, and there's certainly worse places to work. The bank itself was one of the most beautiful buildings in the city. It was a two-and-a-half-story architectural gem designed by Daniel Burnham. It sat in the heart of Chicago's financial district directly across from the Board of Trade building. And the inside? It was lavish, like concert hall lavish. An ornate central rotunda laid with marble and ringed by pillars. The most visually striking thing about the design was the enormous stained glass skylight high above the rotunda. And again, it was about five to five, and because they were so engrossed in finishing up, no one really noticed as a vaguely human shadow appeared. The shadow grew in size and volume until a human shape exploded through the skylight above, fell straight and splacked to a stop in the middle of the marble rotunda, flaming parachute and all. Now, everybody inhale a little extra deep to scream because seconds after, a much larger and oddly bright and shimmery shadow appeared from above. There was an almighty crash and the blimp's flaming bulk crashed through the skylight past the balcony, and immediately it was as if the whole roof was collapsing, and came to rest on the unexpected employees seated below. Harriet Messinger was a switchboard operator seated on the balcony above. She said, After the initial splat, the girls hesitated. Many of them were stunned by glass or too frightened to run. Then the huge machine came through. It seemed to fill the bank with flame that searched out every corner. The heavy part with its engines and tanks fell to the floor and exploded. Yup, the blimp made a deposit. Two heavy rotary engines and gasoline tanks that detonated on contact. Flaming gas sprayed over everyone within 50 feet. One bank employee ran out of his office and was immediately knocked off his feet by the explosion. He got up and someone plowed into him screaming, Oh my god, it's raining hell! He described the screams as indescribable. The area directly beneath the skylight was caged, you know, for security reasons, which also meant it only had two exits. People fought their way through the exits to escape the building while actively engulfed in flames. Many witnesses outside caught souvenirs from the shower of glass created when the bank windows blew out from the explosion. Girls working on the balcony floor were forced to leap screaming to the street below. Gradually, Signs of life were reduced to barely recognizable forms feebly crawling away while their clothes burned off all around them. Bodies lying under the wreckage had been reduced to char by the fire which had grown white hot and this made rescue work pretty much impossible. The marble pillars supporting the roof and lining the rotunda were cracked and broken by the heat. The marble floors had caved in where the engines fell. The entire telegraph and stenography areas were reduced to ashes. But wait. What about those other guys from the blimp? Well, Harry Wacker landed, but he got pretty knocked up doing it. Remember, the only thing more underdeveloped than his actual parachute was his ability to use it properly. And the photographer Milton Norton? Well, he landed feet first, with his legs dead straight. You know what happened? Well, both of his legs shattered, and all of that got fired up into his torso and caused massive internal injuries. If you had been forced to leap from a height, like, you know, forced, forced, would you know what to do? Most people will fall at some point in their lives. Eight million Americans suffer serious fall injuries every year. That is a full third of all emergency room visits right there. 
Whether you fall two feet or 20,000 feet, it's not so much the fall as the landing that's gonna get you, but it's the fall that sets up the landing. The secret to improving your chances of staying at ground level rather than six feet beneath is understanding how to fall as safely as you can. I am gonna tell you a lot of things here and some might seem a little contradictory, but it all depends on the unique circumstances of your fall. If you are falling head first, I'm certainly not gonna be able to train you to do some kind of mid-air somersault in the little time that we have in this segment. I do apologize for that and you will be missed. But for the rest of us, if you find yourself falling, the first thing you're gonna to wanna to do is grab something. And I know that sounds obvious and you're probably gonna do it automatically, but grab anything you can on the way down. The longer your landing takes, the less force it takes for you to stop. People have survived by falling into snow, trees, even mud and wet grass, and they live to tell about it because it absorbed their impact way better than say, a parking lot or a rock quarry. People have been able to slow their descent by fractions of a second by grabbing debris or tree branches or window ledges on their way down. Even how much clothing is fluttering behind you can affect your surface profile. Parachutes have so much surface area because more energy is required to push air out of the way and it slows you down. Don't got one? Well, don't panic right away. If you can, try the splayed out flying squirrel position. That should be able to help increase air drag. It doesn't sound like much, but it can make all the difference between a cracked skull and a crushed skull. Julianne Kopke survived a fall over the Amazon back in the 70s, and it is believed she lived because she had been knocked around by all the foliage before impact. Anything you can impact with will shave speed on the way down. In World War II, a pilot named Alan McGee found himself falling without a chute, and he survived a fall of 20,000 feet. And they say that he survived because he smashed through a glass roof right before impact, which slowed him just enough to make his injuries non-fatal. I know I'm always telling you to relax and try not to panic in these safety segments, and it's obviously easier said than done, but in this case, a relaxed body is better at absorbing and distributing impact forces than, say, a pinwheeling octopus. Try to relax your muscles and your joints, like your elbows and your knees. Ivan Chisov was a Soviet pilot, kinda had to leave his plane behind at 22,000 feet, and he survived because he was unconscious. Not loose and flaily, but not crouched either. You collapse with all your joints all tightened up and you could reasonably kick out all of your own teeth. But if you can't nap on the way down, you might as well actually try to land on your feet. No, this isn't a trick. Landing on your feet does a better job of protecting your skull and your organs than falling flat or onto your sides. It'll still mess you up extremely bad, but it does improve your chances. I know ideally you're supposed to spread out the force when landing, but you don't always get to choose, and you might as well know all your options. You want both feet to hit the ground at the same time to help distribute the shock across both legs evenly. You then want to fall to the side and roll. There's a reason paratroopers are trained this way. In fact, this is going to sound awful, but if you were falling to your side, you could sacrifice your arm. Put your arm out towards the ground like a kickstand, and everything from your palm to your shoulder will shatter, but partially break the fall ahead of the rest of your body. So that's pretty good. I mean, it would be exquisitely painful, but it could reduce your velocity, and even the smallest difference in speed can make a difference in your chances of survival. If you can, try to land on the meatiest parts of your body too. You know, maybe your buttocks or your thighs. I've read that any muscular or fatty parts of your back would do pretty well too, 
but I've also read that falling on your back is the absolute worst option and should be avoided at all costs. And regardless, no matter how you find yourself falling, use your arms and protect your head. Nothing else matters if you can't protect your head. If you survive a major fall without brain damage, then get ready for the shackles of fame because you are incredibly lucky. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Captain Botner landed as safe as can be, like Mary Poppins, y'all, and was immediately whisked away to tell his story to the police. He said, As we neared State Street, I felt the machine buckle and there was a tremor throughout the fuselage. I knew something had happened, and I saw the flames licking the bag. I watched the flames for a couple of seconds before I said anything to the other fellows. Knowing the ship was finished, I yelled, Over the top, everybody. Jump, or you'll burn alive. He was acknowledged for his role in the disaster, but kind of like the way passengers were acknowledged after the Titanic. And what became of poor Earl Davenport? Well, he'd still been attached and dangling beneath the gondola of the flaming blimp as it dropped, and as it forced its way into the bank, Davenport was scraped off against the roof and found later by firefighters. Enthusiasm for the White Sox game deflated as quickly as the blimp, and people started leaving after the third inning. And with 14,000 people at the game adding to the thousands already descending on the area, nearly 20,000 people witnessed the aftermath of the disaster. Many offered help to the victims, and as ambulances ferried survivors to local hospitals, Hundreds of family and friends swarmed Iroquois Memorial and St. Luke's to learn if their relatives were still with us. So, what happened? Well, no one could agree. Two out of the five survivors, oh, I forgot to say, Norton died. Yeah, he is the one who shattered both his legs on impact. Turns out, you cannot reverse telescope your legs without skipping out on your hospital bill, so to speak. Only Harry Wacker and the captain could put a finger down for having fallen out of a flaming blimp and survived, and neither of them could really say what even happened. No one could agree on where the fire started. Forensic investigation wasn't a thing yet, so that was a non-starter, but a lot of theories were offered at the time. One was that a static electric spark set off the blimp's highly flammable hydrogen. Another was that some kind of engine malfunction created an unlucky spark that ignited the gas. Another was that Milton Norton had been using one of those old-timey slow-exposure box cameras that needed flash powder or camera bulbs, and that did it. Another was that the bag absorbed too much sunlight, expanded, and burst. 
Yet another was that a mechanic had used a blowtorch on one of the propellers before takeoff, and somehow a little tiny fire had hid away and smoldered in the fuselage. And after all investigations, they resulted in no determination of the cause of the fire. And although 17 Goodyear employees, including Botner, had been arrested, no charges were ever filed. The bank was pretty jacked up, and surprise, surprise, all that fire hose water did not mix well with the paper bank records. But it was all cleaned up, and employees were expected back the next day, bandages and all. People questioned how this, quote, enormous floating firebomb had been allowed to fly over one of the most densely populated square miles on Earth in the first place. And if this had happened in any other city or at any other time, much would have been made about it. But Chicago was a busy city, like we said, and as incredible as the story was, it quickly faded and was replaced by other news. The day after the disaster, a child was murdered coming home after playing in a nearby schoolyard. It was a completely senseless crime, and five days later, the murderer confessed. Except, on that same day, a young African-American teenager named Eugene Williams had been floating on a raft in Lake Michigan, minding his own business, when a group of white people saw, accused him of floating over some invisible, whites-only imaginary line that they just made up, and when he asked them for clarification, they beat him to death with rocks. After that, a week of race riots ripped across the majority black neighborhoods along the city's south side. And you might think that the black neighborhoods would revolt with rage, and they did, but not before roving gangs of young white men egged them on by attacking them in the streets. By the end of the week, the blimp story had completely disappeared from newspapers as Chicago's Red Summer erupted in destruction and violence all across the city. By mid-August, many parts of the city were in ruins. 38 people were killed, and more than 500 had been injured. The Grand Park airstrip had been closed, and Chicago began building a municipal airport known today as Midway International. Oh, and how did the White Sox finish their year? Well, they powered their way to the American League pennant, which would be its own headline, but turns out they cheated at the World Series. And that is a whole entire other story. So, did blimps immediately fall out of favor and disappear from the skies? Not yet, not exactly. That took 12 more years, when the largest dirigible ever built, all the better for making out all the swastikas from a distance, flew to Lakehurst, New Jersey, and burned before the news cameras and the eyes of the world. Yep, I'm talking about the Hindenburg. And all those people who were busy throwing their wallets at ticket agents were now doing the thing with the finger in the collar. As for the Goodyear blimp, you probably didn't know that America's very first civil aviation disaster was, well, frankly, this unusual. 13 people had been killed, and 27 were seriously injured. The Goodyear disaster revolutionized air safety as over-city flights became heavily regulated in a way never before even considered. Non-radiation-induced trauma was not the only thing it left behind. It was a horror show that traumatized thousands, but because it belonged to a busy newsweek, it was largely forgotten. Some people say that the Goodyear blimp crash of 1919 was an unusual footnote in the history of aviation, and I 100% agree. But the true legacy of the Goodyear blimp crash of 1919 was the immediate desire for safety in the short term that became the beginnings of an air traffic safety system that has continued to evolve for more than 100 years, keeping you and I and millions of others safe, both in the sky and on foot, 
around the world. Blimps never really disappeared, in spite of Hindenburg's best efforts. Radio announcer Herb Morrison's cry of, oh, the humanity, became part of America's first coast-to-coast radio news broadcast. They were refined and made safer with increased availability of non-flammable, lighter-than-air gases like helium. But the idea of blimp-based passenger traffic went down like a lead balloon. They've remained a popular site at athletic events like the World Series or the Super Bowl or the Olympics, but even with that said, today there are more astronauts in the world than blimp pilots. And there is no mention of the airship or the disaster on Goodyear's website. It's as if Goodyear's blimp, the Wingfoot Air Express, never existed. Erased from public memory in a ball of flame. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Doomsday Podcast, or you can fire us an email to doomsdaypod at gmail.com. Older episodes can be found wherever you found this one, and while you're there, please leave us a review and tell your friends. If you want to support the ongoing production of the show, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com doomsday. But if you can spare the money and had to choose, we ask you to consider making a donation to Global Medic. Global Medic is a rapid response agency of Canadian volunteers offering assistance around the world to aid in the aftermath of disasters and crises. They are often the first and sometimes the only team to get critical interventions to people in life-threatening situations. And to date, they have helped over 3.6 million people across 75 different countries. You can learn more and donate at globalmedic.ca. On the next episode, I'm doing a special mini-sode, and which doesn't mean anything because they never really turn out to be that mini. We are going to be revisiting a chapter in the history of my hometown that threatens to leave you both confused and toothless. It's the Toronto Circus Riot of 1855. We'll talk soon, safety goggles off, and thanks for listening. <laughs>